chapter 11. We're going to try to make it through the entire chapter today, which is uh, a kind of a big uh, project here. There's a lot in here, and there's a lot that I hope that we can internalize and understand, um, especially in the first half of the chapter. I know this has often been kind of a point of controversy or confusion. Uh, for me personally, this has been one of the most confusing confusing passages in the New Testament, um, and and I think that in retrospect, I understand a little better why it's been that way. Um, I've studied this passage. I've put many, many hours into it, uh, more than any other passage in the Bible, uh, not because I feel like it's more important than any other passage in the Bible, but because I was genuinely confused, and I genuinely wanted to know what does this passage mean? Because there are so many uh, varying interpretations of it. Another thing that we should be clear on is that God intended for this passage to mean something specific. When he gave it to the Corinthian church, it meant something specific for them. It didn't mean one thing for one person and something else for someone else. It meant something specific. And in the same way today, he intends for it to mean something specific for us. And it's our job to open our hearts and allow him to show us what that is specifically. So that's, that's what I want above anything else. I really don't want to give you my opinion. I, I want God to be able to show us what he intended um, by this passage. It's interesting that Paul wrote these things to the church at Corinth where there was apparently an abundance of demonstrations of spiritual gifts, lots of prophecy and speaking in tongues and demonstrations of the supernatural. And yet they needed an apostolic voice to come into the middle of all this to correct their misconceptions, the misuse of certain doctrines that they had. Why didn't God just speak that to them individually since they had all these prophets and revelations from God? Why didn't God just speak it to them um, directly? He used the apostle to bring a corrective message to the church at Corinth. And in the same way, he does that to us today. We have the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says he teaches us everything that we need to know. And yet he uses the apostolic voice. He uses the word of God to come into our hearts and to correct the misconceptions and the abuses that, that we tend to um, fall into. So let's start by reading verses 2 through 16. I'm going to read out of the NASV. I feel like it's a really direct and clear a uh, fairly literal translation of this passage here uh, from verses 2 through 16, and then we'll look at the last half of the chapter um, later on its own. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying with anything down over his head dishonors his head. But every woman praying or prophesying with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not be covered, then let her be shorn. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For indeed, a man ought not to cover his head, being the image and glory of God. But woman... Is the glory of man for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 
For this reason, the woman should have authority on her head because of the angels. For this reason, I'm sorry, for this reason, the woman should have authority on her head because of the angels. In any case, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman in the Lord. For as woman is created from man, so man is now born through woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor does the, do the churches of God. He starts out with a commendation to the church at Corinth. I commend you that you remember me in everything in the way that you're um, living your lives and working together as a church. I commend that you that you're remembering me. You're remembering the teachings that I gave to you. And you're remembering, you're maintaining the traditions that as I delivered them to you. Now, we often have kind of a negative um, a, a negative regard for the word traditions. We often think of it in terms of human traditions. But this word simply means it was a teaching that Paul had received that he handed over to them or passed down to them. And he uses this later uh, in, in this chapter um, in verse 23 he says i received from the lord what i delivered to you and that that word delivered is just the the verb form of that word that is translated traditions so it's simply a teaching that he received from god and he passed on to them he handed it off to them and he was praising them because they remembered him in the things that they were practicing now traditions here is not to be confused with human traditions which as Colossians says, have an appearance of godliness, but have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This tradition, this teaching is something that was received from God. But I want you to understand, it seems like he's probably correcting a misconception of one of his teachings. And it may have come to him through the, the letter or through the reports that he had received. Um, and he wanted to clarify this. He wanted to clarify uh, the teaching that maybe they had been observing. Maybe they had been observing some of the things outwardly or maybe not. Maybe they didn't understand the heart of it. Um, and it was this, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, full-blown Gnosticism didn't really exist yet, but there were definitely... Uh, precursors to the Gnostic ideas that were circulating in Corinth. One of these was that the soul was a spark or fragment of God, and it was therefore androgynous. It didn't have gender, and so worship should reflect that, and, and the church should reflect that genderlessness. Um, this was a fairly common idea in Corinth. In fact, in Greek worship, there were a lot of crossovers between genders during certain worship rituals. Uh, male priests would cross-dress for, for certain worship rituals they had. And maybe this was an appealing idea to the modern, liberated Corinthian Christians. Wasn't it Paul himself that said, in Christ there is neither male nor female? 
But Paul is coming in here and saying, you have a distorted perspective of this. And he points them back to the creation order that God had established. He says, subordination to God's order was established at creation. It's not a result of the fall. And I want you to understand how this works in context of the Christian church. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. If you have an, an ESV Bible, it probably says, it, well, it does say, it doesn't probably say. It says the head of the wife is her husband. The, the word for woman can be interpreted as wife. The word for man can be interpreted as husband. It's uh, simply contextually determined. And so the translators of the ESV um, figured since this was probably something that was applicable to married women, uh, that an appropriate translation would be to say wife and husband rather than um, woman and man. But they do so only in a few of the verses, and then they revert back to um, woman and man. I feel like there is a principle here that transcends the stages of life. Marriage does, uh, it's a specific way in which the harmony and distinctness of masculinity and femininity are placed on display. But the principle that Paul is giving here is larger than this. And he makes an appeal to the order that God established at creation. And maybe most importantly, he shows us what this looks like in that the head of Christ is God. And this is something that we often don't look at very closely in this passage, but it is key to understanding this passage. If you miss this point, the rest of the passage will not be palatable. Submission to the Father was at the very center of the way Jesus lived his life. And his life is our model for surrender to God's order. As men, we submit to Christ, who is our head. And women are to submit to man. Because that's the order that God established. And we often have kind of this negative thing that pops up in our minds when we, when we talk about this. But do we, when we talk about Christ being subject to God, do you ever have kind of a negative feeling that comes up about that? It's like, eh, that kind of makes Jesus less than the Father because he was subordinate to the Father. It doesn't. Because we understand that their relationship worked together in perfect harmony. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always please him. I don't do anything of my own. He said in John chapter 5, I do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we might think, well, that only applies to the time that Jesus spent on earth. But there's an inherent property of subjection to the Father that belongs to Jesus. And we see this in in Philippians chapter 2, that because Jesus humbled himself... He was exalted and given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we'll see here in in a couple of weeks, it says, when all things are subjected to him, to the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things into, into subjection under him. 
that God may be all in all. So here we see that even though, like Hebrews 1 says, that Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his power, that Jesus is subjected to the Father at the end of all things. Because that's the established order. And he doesn't make him lesser, but it's so that God may be all in all. We don't really have trouble with this idea of Jesus being subject to the Father, maybe as much as we do about humans being subject to each other. Because we default to to equating subjection to inferiority. And that's not necessarily correct, and we'll see why. So he moves on to the outward demonstration of this order. And that is, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. This word, every, appears multiple times through this passage. And I think it's significant in the fact that it's a universal teaching, not just a narrow culture-specific instruction. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head head covered dishonors his head. And it's not just a, a matter, a general matter of men should not cover their heads, women should cover their heads. But he brings up two specific things, two specific things that when you do them, you should not have your head covered, men. He says when you pray, which is what? Speaking to God. And when you prophesy, which is when you're speaking on behalf of God, so you're receiving word from God and communicating that to other people, have your head uncovered. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So the instruction is clear here. When a woman is praying or prophesying, she should have her head covered because if she has her head uncovered, it's the same as if her head were shaved. He makes an appeal now to nature. He says, it's, it's, you would naturally recoil at the idea of a woman shaving her head. And so if that, is, if that seems unnatural to you, fall into order with the natural order that God has established. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. Here's a very important concept that Paul brings out, is that this is the reason that a man should not cover his head when he's speaking to God or when he's receiving a word from God and speaking that to others, because he is created to be the image bearer and glory of God. And specifically, this is an attribute that's assigned to, to masculinity, to men. It's something that was established at creation. God created Adam, and he told him to fill the earth and to have authority over it. To exercise dominion over the earth and to be God's image bearer in that regard. Is there any wonder that that the masculine image of God is under so much attack? 
Because Satan hates when he sees God's image and glory on earth. He doesn't want that around. And so he's going to do everything he can to distort that image, whether it's physically or whether it's spiritually through sin. He's going to distort that image as much as he can. There are qualities that are inherently masculine that God intended to be a reflection, the the image of himself. Just like when you go to uh, when you go somewhere where there's all these carvings and images, you can see a lot about a person in an image, in a bust. Uh, you can see maybe in their austere features. Uh, you know, you look at a statue of Alexander the Great, and he's there on his horse that's rearing, and you look at his austere face, and you see that image that's born by that carving. Even though you can't see Alexander the Great your, yourself, You can see things about him in that image. And in the same ways, even though you can't necessarily see God directly through humans, you can see his image through the way we bear his image. And here he's saying, in particular, men were created to bear the image of God and to show forth his glory. This might be the most underemphasized part of the passage because... Oftentimes the focus goes on women and their need to be subordinate to to their husbands or to men rather than to the subordination that we all have to God's created order. And that is that the head of man is Christ and the head of woman is man. But woman is the glory of man. So man is the image bearer and glory of God. And woman is the glory of man. He doesn't say she is the image of man, but she says he is the glory. Woman is not a lesser version of man. And she's not his image bearer in that regard, but she is the glory of man. She's the most amazing display of the beautiful graces that are known to humankind. They're most clearly seen in woman. And that's why Satan tries to distort and twist the feminine glory that God intended to be displayed through women. He hates what a woman in her God-designed role represents and reflects. For woman was not made, I'm sorry, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And he goes back again to the, the creation order. He says, this is why. This is why the order was established that way, because man was created first. Woman was created out of man, not the other way around. And there's distinct differences between the sexes, between the genders that were established at creation that are inherent to the human race. God designed it to be that way. And I think that's the reason that we see so much effort by the enemy to distort the differences between genders, to just kind of muddy it and make those differences not exist, is because God wanted something beautiful to be on display through the differences between a masculine man and a feminine woman. And today we hear that that's all a social construct. 
Sure, there are probably aspects of masculinity and femininity, ideas that we have, perceptions that we have of, of those things that are social constructs. But originally, God created them different, male and female, to represent himself, his glory, and for woman to be the glory of man. And then he goes on and says, this is why a woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. Now, this word authority is used numerous times through the New Testament. I'll show you just a few ways that it's used. Jesus gave his disciples authority. It's the same word over unclean spirits. People were astonished at Jesus teachings because his words had authority. Jesus said, no one takes my life. Because I have authority to lay it down. I have the right or the authority to lay it down. And to all who received him, who received Jesus, he gave the right or the authority to be children of God. I think Paul was probably answering uh, maybe a question that that the Corinthians had posed or part of the report that he heard about the way they were exercising their freedom, their rights, because they talked a lot about rights, and and this word can either be translated as authority or right. So the the Corinthians were eager to exercise their rights to freedom, and Paul's saying, where authority comes from is from God. It comes from being in line with God's created order. And he says... It's because of the angels. Why does he say that? Why should a woman have authority on her head because of the angels? I think it's because when you pray, you're speaking to God. There's an open line of communication with God. And when you're prophesying, there's an open line of communication with God. God is speaking to you and you're transmitting that message to other people. There's so much more that's taking place than what meets the eye. I think sometimes we pray to a really small God who's just like over here somewhere or, you know, right here in my heart, but but not enthroned on the heavens. And we forget that God is enthroned in the heavens and that thousands and ten thousands of angels are standing at his side ready to do his bidding. And that when we pray, there is in fact a line of communication that's open directly up to God who's seated on his throne. And the angels are watching this. They're actually observing when you pray. Did you ever think about that? Did you think about it that when you pray, when you talk to God, that there may be Thousands of angels who are listening and watching. And in the same way, when God speaks to you, that that line of communication between heaven and earth is open because that's what Jesus did. That's why he died is so that we would have an open access to to the throne of God, to the presence of God, where all the angels are. And he's calling our attention to the fact this is not just about what it looks like in your church service. This is about a much greater reality that is taking place in the heavenlies. And I want you to be aware of this. And I want you to know that if you're going to have authority, it comes from being in line with God's created order. Because there's no authority outside of that. 
And the worst abuses of authority come when people don't understand that, when they think, I have authority. No, you don't, unless you are under authority. Because all authority comes from God. A police officer can pull you over if you're doing 65 in a 55-mile speed zone, and he can give you a citation that's going to cost you hundreds of dollars. And he can rightfully do so. Why? Because he's been given that authority by someone else who has more authority than he does. However, if he pulls you over on a rainy day and asks you for 20 bucks so he can go to Krispy Kreme and get donuts, he is no longer operating under his authority. And his, he doesn't have the right to do that. Neither do we have the right to step out from under the authority that, that God has placed us under. That's why we have to understand this authority from one end all the way to the other, or it will be terribly abused. And sadly, that's often what happens. This structure of authority, it's not cultural or sociological. It's the creation order. And it was modeled perfectly in the way that Christ subjected himself to the Father. That's what we should be looking at. And that's who we should be emulating with the way we live. Now, a lot of translations say symbol of authority because the word authority is making reference to covering the head. So it's implied that this is symbolic of the the authority that you have. However, the word symbol is not in there. It simply says authority. And I, I bring this out to clarify because oftentimes a lot is read into symbol, the translated word symbol, that's that shouldn't be there. Like the symbol needs to be a certain kind of religious covering or religious cap or whatever. It's that that's not there. It's simply talking about covering your head, ladies, not covering your head, men, when you pray and when you prophesy. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is in, not independent of man, nor man of woman. And he brings balance to this picture. For as woman was made from man, we know she was, you know, God pulled out one of Adam's ribs, literally, to create woman. Woman came from man. So now, man is born of woman. There's, there's this beautiful interdependency between the two genders. Every man, no matter how big his biceps was born of a woman and was dependent on her, nourished by her, most likely raised by her. So this isn't just a pecking order, but Paul's showing there's an interdependency here. One is not above the other. We're simply operating in line with the order that God established at creation. And all things are from God. Then he says, judge for yourselves. Is it not proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Sorry, it says, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So he's making, he's making an appeal to nature, and I know that there are distortions of nature, and I think we have to kind of clarify here because we have a lot of people nowadays that are saying, well, I was born with the, the natural desire 
for men. And so even though I'm a man, I'm, I'm going to marry a man. And it's natural for me because that was naturally the way I was born. That's a distortion of nature. Paul is appealing to nature in the sense of the, its original order, the way it was created. But he's saying there are natural, there's this natural ability in you to see what is appropriate and what's not. Doesn't nature itself tell you that if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? And even today, with all the distortions of, of nature, it's, it's still in most cultures perceived that way, that women in general have longer hair than men do because it's a glory to her. And for a man, your man bun is not as cool as you think. For a man to have long hair is shameful. That's something that God naturally built into us. There's an argument that is made frequently from this passage that um, because it says that the woman's hair is given to her for a covering, that uh, that means that there is no other covering that is being referred to. It's simply referring to long hair, short hair. Honestly, that argument has so many problems uh, that most people have long ago abandoned it in favor for uh, more cultural contextual arguments so we're not even going to bother going through all of that um but but there's some great literature available on that if if you want to delve into that a little more um he wraps this passage up by saying if anyone is inclined to be contentious we have no such practice nor do the churches of god now there's varied interpretations of of this um one being the instructions that I just wrote to you right now aren't really that important. What's more important is that you're not contentious, that you're not argumentative about it. Um, and I thought for a long time that that's probably what it meant, kind of. Um, but I don't see it that way um, because in the scope of what Paul just said, he appealed not to a cultural practice. He appealed to the created order. He appealed to the way Christ is subject to God. He, he made strong theological arguments for what he said. And in other places, <clears throat> Paul was very clear about it. The, the, the weight that the teachings that the apostles gave held and how they should not be regarded. And how if someone teaches something different, um, let them be accursed. Another view is that this is a cultural instruction specifically for you guys at Corinth and the churches elsewhere don't have this practice of headship, of subjection, of head covering. So the rest of us don't have that practice. So if somebody's inclined to be contentious, maybe he could go church shopping. I don't think that's what it meant either. Um, I know that a lot of people interpret this as having been something that was culturally applicable to the church at Corinth that does not carry over into modern practice. Um, and we'll look just a little bit at that. Paul specifically writes to every man, every woman, and he repeatedly says that as though it were a, um, a universal teaching. The other interesting thing is that there was a lot of variation in the cultural practices in Corinth, we already talked the, the first uh, Sunday, I think maybe the first two Sundays, about the fact that Corinth was a mixture of cultures. There were Jews there, there were Greeks, um, 
traditionally had been a Greek city until it was destroyed. And then, and then when it was rebuilt by the Romans, a lot of Roman practices and Roman religions were brought into Greece. And this became a, a very a Roman-influenced city. Um, in addition to that, there was all this movement, people that were going through Corinth, uh, traveling through Corinth because it was a strategically placed city. And so there was a lot of different cultural practices in Corinth. As, as best as I could tell, the Jewish men wore head coverings for their religious ceremonies. Jewish women generally covered their heads when they were in the streets, but they would uncover their heads for religious ceremonies for prayer. The Greek men usually went about bareheaded, although the veils were used in times of mourning or when worshiping the underworld deities. So they would wear a veil sometimes depending what deity they were worshiping. Whereas the Greek women would sometimes wear a veiling, but they usually did not wear them for religious rites. The Romans, on the other hand, men and women usually wore a head covering for worship, except for worship of a few gods. And they would uncover their heads when they met someone that they considered important. R.C. Sproul says something in his book, um, Knowing Scripture. He talks about the role of culture in interpreting Scripture. And he uses 1 Corinthians 11 as an example. I'm, I'm going to read what he wrote here about that. It is one thing to seek a more lucid understanding of the biblical content by investigating the cultural situation of the first century. It is quite another to interpret the New Testament as if it were merely an echo of the first century culture. To do so would be to fail to account for the serious conflict the church experienced as it confronted the first century world. Christians were not thrown to the lions for their penchant for conformity. Some very subtle means of relativizing the text occur when we read into the text cultural considerations that ought not to be there. For example, with respect to the hair covering issue in Corinth, numerous commentators on the epistle point out that the local sign of the prostitute in Corinth was to uncover the head. Therefore, the argument runs, the reason why Paul wanted women to cover their heads was to avoid a scandalous appearance of Christian women in the external guise of prostitutes. What is wrong with this kind of speculation? The problem... The basic problem here is that our reconstructed knowledge of first century Corinth has led us to supply Paul with a rationale that is foreign to the one he gives himself. In a word, we are not only putting words in the apostle's mouth, but we are ignoring words that are there. If Paul merely told women in Corinth to cover their heads and gave no rationale for such instruction, we would be strongly inclined to supply it via our cultural knowledge. In this case, however, Paul provides a rationale which is based on appeal to creation not the custom of Corinthian harlots. We must be careful not to let our zeal for knowledge of culture obscure what is actually said. To subordinate Paul's stated reason is to speculatively, to our speculatively conceived reason is to slander the apostle and turn exegesis into eisegesis. The creation ordinances are indicators of the transcultural principle. If any biblical principles transcend local customary limits, they are the appeals drawn from creation. And so, in fact, I think Paul was giving instructions to the Corinthians that were going to go against a lot of cultural norms. That's the cost of following Christ, is that we say, God, I'm lining myself up with your established order, because I know that's where true authority lies. That's where true authority lies, is when we are in line with God's established order. 
And so, I think this is what Paul meant when he said, if anyone wants to be contentious about it, if anyone refutes the apostolic instructions that I just gave and brings in doctrine that's contrary to this teaching, remember that this is a universally understood principle and practice application in the churches. Like he said in 1 Corinthians 14, was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And in 1 Timothy, he says words that are even stronger. He says, if someone brings in doctrines that are different from what we've taught you, he is puffed up and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And that's not in line with the way the church of Jesus is to operate because we step into line with God's established order and that's what we say yes to. And that's where our authority comes from. And then he transitions to instructions on the lord's supper and he says but in the following instructions i do not commend you maybe this is kind of in contrast to what he said at the beginning of chapter 11 that i commend you i praise you for remembering the teachings that were delivered to you but in the following instructions i do not commend you because when you come together it is not for better but for worse corinthians when you get together to have church It's supposed to be constructive. And in fact, it's doing the opposite. It's worse than if you wouldn't get together at all. Because in the first place, I hear that when you get together, there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I think what he's saying there is, the, the very fact that there were divisions in the Corinthian church was demonstrating their carnality and the people who did not participate in those, the things that were creating divisions were the ones that were shown to be genuine. Not the ones who were using their knowledge to lift up themselves and to create divisions in the church. They had... They had so much liberty and so much knowledge that the the very thing that was supposed to be pulling them together, remembering the body and blood of Jesus, was splitting them apart and creating chaos in the church. The Lord's Supper, instead of being shared in fellowship and oneness, was becoming something that made class distinctions, where one person would eat in excess and drink in excess and even get drunk and another person would do without. This, is, this stands in stark contrast to what we see in, in the book of Acts, what the early church did where they all came together and there was so much unity and so much excitement about following Jesus that none of them said that anything that they, they had was theirs they all like gave to each other and they contributed to each other's needs and they would go from house to house breaking bread together, remembering Jesus, remembering what Jesus had done for them. And all of this, what was supposed to be a celebration and remembering Jesus had become distorted and had become something that was splintering the church instead. And Paul says, 
He establishes again the authority of what he had received from God. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. This is not something to be taken lightly because this was something that God handed to me to hand to you. That Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples were probably already familiar with those words. This is my body. They had heard Jesus say that before. He said, this is my body. Anyone who doesn't eat my body, my flesh, and drink my blood doesn't have part of me. They knew that to be a part of Jesus, they had to enter into his sacrifice, his body, his blood. The significance of the body, of this token, of this memorial that Jesus had given them, because this was an outward act that represented something, that symbolized something that was much larger, much more important than the physical act that they were doing when they ate bread and drank the wine. The significance that that had to them was directly correlated to the significance that Jesus had to them. If you're given something to remember someone by, you will value that possession usually as much as you value the person who gave it to you, right? I thought about that when I put this shirt on this morning. This used to be Isaac's shirt. And then when Isaac died, he gave it to Marco. And Marco wore it for not sure how many years. And now I have it. It means a lot to me because... Those people mean a lot to me. I remember Isaac. I remember Marco. I remember things about them. They're special to me. And so this shirt has a lot more meaning to me than just a shirt. If I would take this and drop it off to Goodwill, somebody wouldn't appreciate it the way I appreciate it. So in the same way, this this outward symbolism of what Jesus had done meant only as much to the people who, who were doing it as what Jesus meant. And maybe they had disregarded the body and blood of Jesus to get to this place where they abused the outward symbolism the way they did. Participation in the body and the blood of Jesus cannot exclude participation in his sacrificial sufferings. We often talk about uh, taking the Lord's Supper, taking the, the bread, drinking the wine, as simply remembering what Jesus did, but it's also drawing us into participation with his suffering, his sacrifice. He's saying, remember me, yes, but also enter into the way I live. Enter into my sacrifice. Enter into my death. Because that's the only way you can live in my resurrected power. And the Corinthians had forgotten about that. Paul told them in chapter 10, he said, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body for all partake of one bread and the Corinthians forgot about this the very thing that was supposed to draw them together unite them into one body 
their reverence for the, the body and blood of Jesus had now become something that was being abused, where they were feasting and eating just for the joy of eating and, and neglecting each other and creating divisions in the church. The, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And in making this covenant with us, Jesus was saying, I'm going to fulfill what God promised, that my laws are going to be written on your hearts. And I'm ratifying this covenant through the blood that I'm shedding for you. And I want you to become participants in the covenant through drinking the cup with each other collectively. Because as often as you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until I come. Powerful words. This isn't just, we're, we're not just showing it to each other. We're showing this to the principalities and powers that Jesus was broken, that his body was given sacrificially, and that his blood was poured out so that we could be his church, so that we could be his body. Corinthians, remember this. You're showing forth the death of Jesus every time you do this. Cleveland, remember this. This is what you're doing when you take the bread and the cup. You're showing forth the sacrificial death of Jesus. And you're doing it in such a way that draws you together and that makes you one body because you are the body of Jesus. But some were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, bringing guilt on themselves, bringing the guilt of the crucifixion of Jesus onto themselves and bringing the Lord's judgment onto themselves. And Paul told them, because you're not properly judging yourselves, you're not looking at your life and saying, hey, this is messed up. This needs to be changed. God's judging you. And you're having to be disciplined because of his judgment. But if you would judge yourself truly, you wouldn't have to be judged by the Lord. So here's your opportunity. Look at your life. Look at the way you've been practicing your, your spirituality when you're together. And judge yourselves so that you won't be judged by God. So there's a self-examination that has to happen so that we can come together to eat and drink the Lord's body and his blood, which draws us together into one body. Because as often as we do this, we're showing forth the Lord's death until he comes.